Next Chapter Podcasts. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Oh. Oh, Portishead, what are you doing to me? Let me tell you guys something. That right there, that little squididdle of an intro, that is how you introduce yourself to the world. That was Mysterians by Portishead off their 1994 debut album, Dummy. Let me tell you guys something. This is why the podcast is so dope. Because I've known about this record, I have listened to this record, I have loved this record, but to be able to study it and then talk about it with a guest, I know I say this all the time, I throw I throw around the word perfect, I throw around the words my favorite a lot, but man, I love making this. I, I can't thank Beth enough for having a voice that's so haunting that it just touches my squididdles. Do you know what I'm saying? It's also number 419 out of 500 on the Spotify Ridge, the 500, with me, Josh Adam Myers, the King Cadougal, the King of Fleece. You're in the Fleece Army. How's everybody doing? I hope everybody had a fantastic Memorial Day weekend of doing nothing. Separating yourselves from your loved ones that you want to see. <laughs> you stayed in. You watch the Lance Armstrong documentary. You listen to the Winds of Change podcast on Spotify, which is the shit. It's great, man. I'm not going to lie to you guys, man. If this goes on for three more months, uh, the only thing I'm going to hate about it is not being able to get into the same room with another human being to record this podcast. But we're having a good time, man. I Hopefully, I mean, I think they sound good. You know what I mean? All I know is that the albums we have coming up, man, they are wearing Zookies. All right, guys, so here's the deal with this one. Released on August 22nd, 1994, this is the first record from English electronic band Portishead who popularized the genre known as trip-hop. Producer and multi-instrumentalist Jeff Barrow worked as a tape operator in Bristol. He worked with Massive Attack and Tricky and produced remixes for established artists like Peter Weller, not Peter Weller, Robocop. Oh, wait, Paul Weller. All right. See, see how I fucked that up. Depeche Mode and Primal Scream and writing songs for Nene Cherry. Seeing that there was an interest for hip-hop in England with Massive Attack, Jeff started working with a sampler and a computer to make his own beats. Then he met local pub singer in 1991, Beth Gibbons, during a coffee break at a UK works program that funded the retraining of unemployed people to start their own businesses. Barrow! had only considered making music on a project-by-project basis, but after hearing Beth Gibbons' honest and raw, tortured lyrics and that sultry singing style, he knew they had something special. Jeff named them Portishead after the coastal town about eight miles west of Bristol, where he grew up. 
They worked extensively with jazz guitarist, multi-instrumentalist, and producer Adrian Utley, who had a room at Coach House Studio and was 15 years older than Barrel, although he wouldn't become an official member until after this record. They start working with engineer Dave McDonald, who brought in the hip-hop, dub, and eerie atmospheric sounds and movie scores that they were so influenced by. Adrian Utley calls his friend, drummer Clive Dreamer, to join them in the studio for two sessions that would be sampled and looped and recorded. Then they made their own film. It's called To Kill a Dead Man, with music inspired by spaghetti western composer Ennio Marcioni. And that short film got the attention of Go Beat Records, who signed them on the strength of the soundtrack. After 18 months of creation, Dummy was created and was a melancholy masterpiece. It caught on almost immediately, and along with Massive Attack and Tricky, they made trip-hop the Bristol sound. This album went on to win the Mercury Music Prize, which if you guys know anything about me, it's the the prize that I respect more than anyone. And in America alone, it sold 150,000 copies. And my guest today is a huge fan of this record, the one and only Jamie Kennedy. You know Jamie from the Jamie Kennedy Experiment, the movie Scream, countless stand-up specials and documentaries. Jamie is a fan of Portishead, and as his star was rising, so was Portishead's. So it's a nice, perfect mishmash of kajinglies. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to The 500 and listen free on Spotify. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Email the podcast at 500podcasts at gmail.com. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. Well, y'all, nothing left to say, but here we go with number 419 out of 500 with Dummy. By Porter's head. I'm so tired of Jamie. Jamie with this Kennedy. I'm gonna give my heart away. Wow. I thought I was, you were deep. I thought you were gonna go second verse. Well, no, you know what's funny? What's funny, Jamie, is that, I mean, I am so happy that this record came up on the list because I have loved this band for so long and from listening to it. And I mean, really digging into this record right now, like I am, I get why it's on the list. And I'm so happy that after three weeks of girl groups and, and, and buddy Holly, we have something like this. So, cause it's just, it's just, I'm not saying it's made me happy, but it's just made me appreciate I don't know if that makes sense. Like this music just does something to me. What about you? It's totally unique. Um, when this is one of the few times, I mean, I've only been alive almost, well, about 40, almost 50 years, but the eighties, certain songs, when they come on, you know exactly where you were, but this band, this song, this album, dummy, this, 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 this time in music, hit me and the you know the most important time in my life where you know as you know and I know you know we're both comedians and we've had a long history and so Portis head was the transition of struggling to get success in acting and comedy to it being there with me 
as it was happening. And I believe it was 95 or 96. And it's literally like right after I finished my first role, which is uh, in a movie called Romeo and Juliet, where the director Baz Luhrmann. Oh, Lerman, yeah, you were in that shit, dude. And you're wearing the exact same shirt today <laughs> that you wore <laughs> in Romeo and Juliet. If you guys can't see this, but he is Itch. dressed like Don Ho right now. Bro. As a white guy in your late forties, you gotta go. You gotta go easy with people, right? This is hey, we're not a problem. We're <laughs> at least no. problematic. Flower Have a shirts. picnic. We don't yeah. care. Just do it. Just do you. You don't want to wear a mask and stand close to me. That's fine. <laughs> um, so, Baz Luhrmann is you know a super music guy with his films. I mean, yes, his he is, soundtracks yeah. are as dope as the movie. It's like you know him and Quentin. There's a few guys that are like that, and he's one of them. And so he was like, you know, hey, listen to this. This is Tricky. And I'm like, what the fuck is that? He like put me on to Tricky. You know what yeah. I'm saying? And because he, he had everything but the girl on the soundtrack. He had the Cranberries. He, Radiohead had done a whole version of music for the. So then I was like, I never, I was like a mainstream dude. You know what I mean? It's like Rick D's. That was me. And all of a sudden I'm like, whoa, what's Wait, wait. So what are you listening? Wait, wait, wait. So what were you listening to? Like that song that's like, I'm a rooftop, let it go. Baby, I'm ready to go. Like that's what what you're listening (laughs) to in your trailer. He's coming out with fucking like, you want to listen to Maxonique? Whatever the fucking tricky record is. And you're like, nah, dude, I've got my Republica. I'm good, bro. Yeah, dude. He's like the Pixies, (laughs) B-side, the Troubadour, the Late Show. I mean, he knew- He has it all. So I do that, do the movie. It was great. I'm going on to do another movie, Scream. I, again, never a heard, lot of- I never heard of it, dude. Never, never heard, heard of Scream. I know what you're talking about. And, <laughs> and Nick Cave, <laughs> thank you. Nick Cave was on that record and he had done- So long story short is, I know it's about Portishead, but all of this music, the 90s, was getting in my grill- firsthand because of these experiences I was having. And yeah. I was going from literally living in like smaller than a bachelor to like having a one bedroom apartment to potentially buying house, something nicer. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so I had, I had a, I got my first agent. Her name is Katie Mason. She was at APA. She had me, she had Rose McGowan she had my buddy Jimmy, who I swear I forget his last name. Don't punch me, Jimmy. I love you. But he's been in all the Gregor Rocky movies. And he, yeah, I was just about Jordan. to say, this sounds like a Gregor Rocky lineup, dude. Yes. I, I was, it's I was Gregor like, Rocky. Is this, is this the cast of Nowhere? Yes, it's totally <laughs> that. It's, it's Gregor Rocky. It's Ryan Phillippe. It's all of that, that 95-ish feel. Yeah. And, and Jordan Ladd was my neighbor. And Jordan Ladd is the daughter of Cheryl Ladd and you know, she's Hollywood lineage, like Drew Barrymore. Laddie yeah. was her, her grandfather, you know, David, I think it was David Ladd legends. Anyway, she was with Katie and she would be like, Hey man. And I would go over to her house and I was broke and she always had weed and I wasn't smoking a ton <laughs> of weed because I was like, but, but I was like, Here's the thing. It was like, you got to hustle, open mic, open mic, whatever, whatever. And then like, oh, I, was, I got I got a job. Celebrate. Smoke a little joint. Yeah. Jordy's a little fire. Bam. And she puts this. She's the one. She puts this record on. And I'm like, 
did you just put like LSD in my weed? Like what? <laughs> like I literally, it was like nothing I had ever heard before. Yeah. And, and that's how I got to that. That music was introduced to me through her. And like I said, Baz, but this album was her. And I felt like I felt like I was on drugs. It's it's just the sound of it, or is it lyrical, or is it just the themes? Because I mean, Portishead has like a mood. Like I I, I can't oh, tell you, dude. Because like, dude, two days ago I took mushrooms and wandered around Hollywood, and uh, I listened to a bunch <laughs> of upcoming records that we have on this list. Portishead was it was a tough record uh, as I was tripping to really. Uh, put me in the mood that I think I wanted to be in. I wanted to be positive. Like I felt everything. And it's weird for you to be, how old are you when this is going down? 25. Yeah. So you're, you're 25 when this is, when this is going down. So yes, 24 and, years ago, half of my life of half of my life. I didn't even, first like of all, of I, that, I just, I thought you were my age for a second. I'm 40. What are you? So I'm 40. You are? So I, yeah. I thought, I know I look way older than I, you. <laughs> this is I, if, Go if, organic if, on the mushrooms If fentanyl was a human being It would look like me <laughs> um, But no but it's because what's funny Is my experience With Portishead Didn't come right away I remember hearing Sour times on. I saw the video on MTV and being Like dude this is the cheesiest Shit I've ever seen in my life Fuck this song next and I just passed it over it wasn't until i kind of started getting into like the rave scene in the late 90s where it you know this is like five years after the record came out that i i had this girl that i was trying to sleep with and she was so cool her name was melissa konishi i think her name is she's out there names y'all yeah i do but she's she's cool all i'm telling her is she's hot (laughs) we never hooked up i tried to but but what she did was was tell me about Portishead and being like, yo, this is a really cool band. And she was a cool person. So I started really listening to it. And from that point on, I've loved this band. Do you know what I mean? There's something about oh. it. I don't think I was ready at, at 16, 17. It wasn't until I was about 20, 21 years old. Dude, it's so soulful. And you want to talk about unique. Have you ever heard a sound since? Well... It's funny that you mentioned that, okay? Because I just think I love the trip hop genre. This little subgenre of music that came out in the early to mid 90s and really, you know, it's continued on, but it's changed so much. And Portishead was like the first one to really incorporate this cinematic score, these jazz guitar piano riffs, because if you think about it, Massive Attack was more dub oriented doing more reggae stuff, and then they heard this, and then they went on to do something close to it, which is Mezzanine, which is one of my favorite records of all time. Tricky, still in the dub genre, he starts changing to fit this. Dude, she has influenced, Beth and the band, I don't know why I said she, but they've influenced, like, Uncle, DJ Shadow, Bjork, Sneaker Pimps, Mazzy Star, and even today, you have people like Lana Del Rey, that did a whole record uh-huh. that lives in this subgenre of trip hop. Yeah. Um, I also think what's so great about this band 
is that Portishead made this record. Then they made Portishead, Portishead, which was just more of the same, right? Sounds almost identical to this record. And then they they break up because they realize they're just doing the same thing over again. They wait 11 years and then come back with their third album, which is, sounds nothing like the first two. And that's something that I respect, which is like, if we're going to do this again, we're doing a whole different style than what we did on those previous two records. And I think that's, that's why I love any band is just seeing them grow. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah, they're completely, they, they're a real artist. I mean, they're not going to just push out an album if they don't have anything to say. The other thing is I think, and I've had this belief for a long time, Jamie, that, <laughs> that people weren't having good sex in England until Portishead <laughs> came out. <laughs> Like sure. pe- they're fucking to like the Beatles, you know. How can you how can you maintain an erection when in the background it's like you say yes, I say no. You couldn't fuck to what is it? Bang bang Maxwell Silver Hammer down. Uh, actually, you can fuck to that song. You can fuck to big, I am the Walrus. You can I'm fuck to I am the Walrus, but that's there's not many. There's not many, and I and it's this is my this is my the most truthful statement I've ever said in my life. I've been putting on Portishead when I have sex for years, and it perfectly sums up sex with me because it's sexy but a little depressing. Do you know what I mean? I d- <laughs> and I love it. Dude, I love this band. It's so true, but it's definitely like at like mid '90s for me. You know, taking a hit of a joint out the window. You got your first job. You just got your first check, and you're like, "What's this business gonna bring?" You know what I'm saying? That oh, I can o- I can only imagine where you were because when I mean your life is starting when this when I first got into them. I mean, I was literally dressed in Jinko pants, putting cat tranquilizer up my nose every Friday night <laughs> at a at a rave. So it's Did it's. You- it took, I was about 11 years off for my life to really start, I think, at that point. <laughs> but it's still... But I think, Jamie, that's why I fucking dig this shit. Because I, I appreciated it then when I was this druggy, just fucking raver. And now, as an adult, it affects me so much. Like, listening to this record now, it, it's... And really digging in, because I gave it... I gave it at least 14 spins since I saw it was coming up. And every single time I listened to it, I found something new that I loved about it. Yeah. It's just so deep. It's just so soulful. Like you said, it is like depressing, but not, it feels good. Nothing about it feels forced, right? As you, I can appreciate that. And I would appreciate that. It just feels like it kind of oozes out into you. Yeah. Oh, it's a hundred percent of news. There's some really cool things that I found out about this record when it came to the recording. So, uh, the band gets together, uh, and they're highly influenced by like James Bond era spy movie and TV soundtracks like John Barry and Lal. I'm going to fuck this name up. Lalo Schifrin and spaghetti Western composer Enyo. Mar- I'm going to fuck his name up too. Marconi Marcione. Please. Cadugals uh, out there. Don't get mad at me that I can't get this right. But after reading that and listening to this record again, I was like, oh, you can hear it perfectly. And the coolest shit out of anything about the recording of this is even though digital recording was accessible at the time, 
they did all of this analog. So basically what they would do is they recorded their own samples, then they pressed them on vinyl records, which they threw around and stepped on to make sound vintage, then spun those on turntables like a DJ would. So they would record the instruments, they would record sections, they'd press that onto vinyl, they'd fuck the, the record up, and then they would do, and then they, that's how they would, they would get the recording, and then they'd put that on the analog tape, which is like... Which Who is the are these people? Shit. That is insane. Well, it all has to go with wow. It all has to go with the band. Uh, Jeff Barrow was a tape operator, and he worked with Massive Attack. He worked with Tricky. Uh, the cool thing about Portishead is that Massive Attack and Tricky are already doing it, and then they don't expect to be a band. They just say, well, let's just start making music together and let's, if we like this style, so let's incorporate that, like the, the soundtrack scores and shit into it. Dude, it's, you're so right about, first of all, Massive Attack, which was like the precursor. That was like, yeah. And not in a bad way. It was the, it was, I don't, I want to say the MySpace, but almost the Friendster to the whole scene, right? It was like kind of, yeah. they were the first one with that type of sound that was like, oh, this is so fucking cool. And then, and then the fact that, they did that and they had all that like they're just so detailed that's insane uh, this watch the movie to kill a dead man it's on youtube it's only 10 minutes long and it's just it's like if you if any other score would have been on this film you would have been like oh this is a piece of shit but because of the music that's in there and it's just it sounds like just like this record but without any lyrics it's fantastic it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, you. Do you have any plans this year? Ha! <laughs> How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020 where myself benny goodman and my good friends Corey pays and siobhan cronin from the band lost symphony also got 2020 and since the world ended this year we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing we're gonna get a candid look at life on and off the stage as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry new episodes drop every sunday and wednesday at 9 p.m eastern and you can listen at 2020-d.com soundtalentmedia.com or on your favorite podcast app all right you want to dive into some of the record go for it all right so the album opens up with mysterions this is the world's intro into portis head and i don't think you can come out with a better representation of what you're about to get peter play the intro Did you hear, and this is something that after 20 years of listening, I never got. Did you hear the DJ cutting up someone saying Portishead right there? No. Yeah. So I was reading the lyrics and then I was like, and it says that it's just like, it says, it says Portishead three times and it's just the DJ just fucking Portishead. It's fucking sick. 20 no, years. On, the, on that back scratch? On that back scratch. Yeah. Which is oh, the sickest oh shit. Oh my God. It's just I've the sickest heard. shit. <laughs> so. Dude, in, all the. 
all the details you told me, I now started listening to the analog, the little poppiness. I started hearing it. Oh, you're going to listen to this record after this, dude, and you're going to be like, after this, we do the podcast, and you're going to be blown away by the shit that I give you. So in England in the 60s, there were these intricate sci-fi puppet TV shows for kids like Thunderbirds and Captain Scarlet and the Mysterions, and Jeff Barrow loved their composer Barry Gray's lush orchestral sounds. So this song is supposed to sound like that. Now here's some of the sample lyrics from this song. Inside you're pretending crimes have been swept aside somewhere they can forget. Now I love that line inside you're pretending and because you had a career basically pretending you were somebody else to a bunch of strangers that have never seen you before. Can you tell me what the thrill of having a Jamie Kennedy experiment prank work? What's that like? Um, well, it was, it was great to have because it's like, you know, it's like, there was like two sides to me. There was like an actor and a comedian. And I felt like I wasn't getting, I wasn't being able to express what I wanted to express in the movies the way I could myself. And I was very lucky and fortunate to be in these movies, but it wasn't like I wrote it. So, and I was always a fan of SNL and I was like, what, what's a way to really like, you know, do your own twist on it. So it was like candy camera and SNL. So it was like, we're doing this sketch and this skit with real people. And that was the whole, it was a trick every week to see if I could fool people. So a lot of people are like, yo, how fun was that to do? And it was fun as the result, the doing of it was, it was harder because it was three hours in makeup People not showing up, people busting you, people getting really mad, people chasing me, people cursing me out, all the stuff that I wanted to show them to see. Like, people were furious at me when I do these pranks. What's the most mad somebody got at you? Are you ready? Right now, yeah. off the top of my head, the, the most mad ever was a golfer. Which of, of course, course, dude. Of course. Right? Just an old so, white guy, probably. I'm assuming old white guy oh, wearing some chinos. Maybe the shirt you dude. have on right now, dude. <laughs> yeah. Were you there? No, I think he had like a, I think he had a Fred Perry. But um, it was basically we were doing a foursome, Pasadena. The joke was on the one guy. I was playing B Red, the character, and like every time he would like spack swing, I'd start rapping. I'd be like, "Yeah, look at his swing. It's like Phil Mickelson, kind of Sickelson. <laughs> He's not Jack Nicholson, like all types of shit." Yeah, he dude. fucking threw. Not a fucking putt, a nine iron. Okay, that's the heaviest it's the heavy, iron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he fucking threw it at my fucking head. Like, he was like, fuck <laughs> you. Don't fucking rap. Don't my fucking backswing. Fuck, this guy went crazy. Only guy ever in the history of the show out of like 300 pranks not to sign. Only guy to ever sue us. The only guy we ever had to pay off. The only guy after it was on TV, we said, come on. He still, to this day, hates my guts. But wait, well, how much do you have to pay this dude? Do you know? Can you tell us? I don't know. I mean, probably like they probably paid him like 20 grand to go away. That's how it is. Uh -huh. I don't know. I'm, it's part of the corporation. But yeah, there was a lot of people angry at it. Because we'd be like, hey, you know, like, hey, uh, Josh, you know, so we put like your wife in a situation and it'd be like, you know, just kidding. Your wife's not fucking that guy. And the guy, yeah, and the guy was like, "Fuck!" Yeah. Like, you were gonna fuck him, Dolores? Really? You're gonna fuck him? Like, you can't fuck him. We so, have kids. Yeah. So people, but it was awesome. So I mean, and that was actually that's another story. But the, the third year we got a DJ, this girl, and she introduced me to 
drum and bass, which is a whole other podcast. I never. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa! I didn't realize you were a little little junglist. Dude, here's here you want a backstory. Backstory on the side note. So I used to get, we had a great assistant on the show and he was really in the scene, you know, like Silver Lake Intelligence before it was there type of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he said, yo, there's these dudes that they make really funny. They're like you, but they have like really good beats, but they also are funny. And and like you should listen to them. He would listen and they were funny. And then like I would hear him more and they would listen. He's like, there's a, they're a group, man. And I'm like, he's like, you should have them as your house DJ. And this is the third season. I'm like, they're really good. And I'm like, who are they? He goes, they're called the Lonely Island. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I'm like, they're fucking great, right? And then the network's like, yeah, we want to like, we like them a lot, but we also want to have this girl. And so we hired a girl who was also great named Reed Speed. And she put me on, she was like the girl DJ, and she put me on to drum and bass. But the Lonely Island. I was hearing their fucking mixtapes back in like oh one, and it was just killer as it is now. And it's just which like- is which is great, but I'm tripping off the fact that you just said Reed Speed because I'm if I'm not mistaken, she's from Northern Virginia, and I've seen her and done drugs with her multiple times. Maybe not <laughs> no! with her. Maybe not like we shared like a bump of anything, but like one hundred percent, I was doing bumps listening to Reed Speed. Like that's dude, it's just like such a blast. Dude, my brain just fucking exploded as soon as you said read speed. Wow, because she, she would go with us on the road. She would have the DJ would cut around. All right, this next bit, what happens if your wife is fucking the name, you know, whatever. And then she'd be a she would take us out with all the bumpers, but she was this hot girl. Yeah, I was gonna beats. say she was cute. She was cute. Dark she was hair. So cute. Yeah, she was yeah. just great. So. Oh. Not that I don't think the Lonely Island is cute, but hey, you know. That's I mean, I'd happens. fuck Andy Samberg, dude. I'd fucking, <laughs> I'd suck his dick backwards. I'd pull it between his legs with my nose Back. in his asshole and suck the shit out of it. You ever, you ever had your dick suck backwards? <laughs> it's called ringing the doorbell. We got dude, you. It's a Wang Zuki, baby. All right, let's let's dive into the second song. So, Pete, don't edit that out. No, keep that shit in, Pete. This is this is the best shit we've ever done. Um, <laughs> Sour Times. So like I said, I made fun of this song when I first heard it, but after 15 really, year old, 15 year old. You, no, you're right, Jamie, because I wasn't fucking ready, man. You're no not ready for there, certain kid. things. Yeah, nah, dude, I had a full bush at fucking 15. <laughs> dude. I was a hairy kid. <laughs> Hair. I'm, I don't know what happened. It all started falling off. Uh, like, right now, uh, my I'm trying to get my body to look like Casper Van Diem from Starship Troopers. Just no hair. Watch Starship Troopers and notice that there's no hairs on any of the guys' butts in the future. By the way, I saw Casper about two years ago. There's still no hair. I haven't seen his butt in a while. But there's, <laughs> as a human, no hair. But I'm sure his butt is gloriously smooth. Oh, it's still great, dude. <laughs> oh, big ups, Casper. If you're out there, baby, call me. All right, here, put on 56 seconds in on Sour Times, Peter. So covered by the blind belief that fantasies of sinful screens bear the facts, assume the die and the vows, no need to lie, enjoy, take a ride, take a shot now. That is the most poetic shit about infidelity and love that I think I've ever heard. And I think what she's trying to get is a married man to fuck her. 
Right or wrong? Wow. Am I right or am I wrong? Dude, that's so she's that I felt like when she said nobody loves me, like that's like at that time that was hitting me. I mean, that hits but me she's, now. But she's not saying, and that's, you, Jamie, I'm right here with you right now, agreeing 100%. When I first heard this, I thought she was, like, being a depressive bitch and just being like, nobody loves me. It's true. But it's that second part. She's just, like, like nobody fucks me like you do. Do you know what I mean? That's what she's saying. That's what I think. That's just my interp. So this was actually the second single, but it didn't do as well until after the success of their third single when it was re-released and really caught on. Barrow's childhood DJ friend, Andy Smith, would play him obscure records to sample over a drum loop, check this shit out, over a drum loop from Smokey Brooks' 1971 Spin It Jig. Oh, fuck. When I read that, I thought I was going to say Smokey and the Bandit, but it's, I don't even know who Smokey Brooks is. Was a sample from Computer Lalo <laughs> Schifrin song Danube Incident from an episode of a 60s spy TV show, Mission Impossible. Now, I love this song so much, but the best part is right at the three-minute mark when her voice goes up. Peter, play that. Chills. I get chills when she inflects her voice. And I think it's because Beth has this soft falsetto in almost every song. So anytime she inflects it up and you feel like a form of like power from it, it just tickles me, man. Gets me right in the giblets, dude. Dude. Yeah. I mean, like that voice is like, you know, at that time, it's just like, again, like you had like everything but the girl. You had these couple of these soulful type of girls on and she, she was so signature. But what just made me think about what you were saying is at that time, like I was consuming pop culture and like songs were like three minutes, you know, like, yeah. boom, you know, first verse, refrain, refrain, done. And this doesn't fit on any radio. No, you know, it never did. And this to me was it. like, yeah, they K rock esque ish. Yeah, this is hip radio it, stations, maybe MTV, like 120 mm, minutes. 120, 120 minutes. minutes. 120 the, minutes. 2 a.m., dude. Like, I never saw it on MTV. I saw it on VH1. Like, there was another station, and I forget what the fuck it was called. And it was on, in LA. I don't know when you were here. It was like 90. Three-ish, 93.1, but it was, oh, fuck, it was called Mars, and it was in the early 90s, and it was even crazier than K-Rock, and they would play, and they had, I think Sluggo from K-Rock did a moment over there, and it was, this is who would have played Portishead. So the next song is the song that I've fucked with so hard for so many years. It's the third track. It's Strangers. So cool facts about it. They used a sample from the intro of Weather Report's 1976 Elegant People. But what I love about this song is that Beth has this incredibly soft falsetto over these huge compressed beats. Uh, Peter, kick it. Top five, dude. Top five of any song. Oh, this is this is this is hands down like in in my in my favorite songs of all time. I mean, this is definitely in the top one hundred, if not the top fifty. The reason being isn't this recording of it. If you go 
uh, on Spotify and check out their live at Roseland version. And you can also go on YouTube and watch that as well. Uh, and if you haven't seen it, watch it because we were talking about this via text. The audience in that performance is the most 90s audience I have ever seen in my life. Everybody is dressed in Fat Farm and fucking Fresh Jive. We NYCE. saw some, ex- some NYPNB, all the clothes that you'd buy at like Journey or Mr. Rags. Hush puppies. Did you wear that shit? You wore that. You I had to have worn that shit, that shit dude. That shit. Dude, you had to have worn that shit. I could, because I, I mean, right now you're in like you're in the the Don Ho phase. But I know mm-hmm. for fucking sure <laughs> what what was a Friday night outfit for you in like 1990? Whoa. I'm gonna bring it up. 1997. I had a fresh jive on. Ugh. I might have had Dickies, but they had like a comfortable version. Yeah, Sometimes, so, uh, I mean, hush puppies that were like for a special occasion. That was like sushi on sunset. You know what I mean? Yeah. I had a nice Auburn pair of slip on hush puppies. <laughs> uh, Vans also yeah. slip on. And what else? And oh, some kind of like puka shell necklace. Definitely. Oh, I knew, I didn't shell. think you were gonna be a puka shell dude, but I'm you know not I mean? hating on you. I never did puka shell, but I did do the three eleven balls. You know those three eleven balls? Those little balls around your yeah. neck with like with like an extra from the movie Groove. Fucking oh my god! It's like was is Josh working at the Macaroni Grill or is he in the movie Go? I'm in Go. That's what I'm. Dude, saying. it's from Go. Ninety. So it says a ninety-seven sushi on sunset. Do you remember that place or is that too early I don't. for that's you? Too, that's too oh, early. Oh, yeah. sushi on sunset across from Roxbury. Bam, and you're. I'm, I'm you too, your, even Roxbury's too early for me. Yeah. Wow. But, but I know where it is. I know where it is. I see it and all the time. You're taking out the stand-in from the guest spot you just did. You know, on uh, whatever I'm trying to think of it, like show WB show Muscle. I don't know. There was a show back then called Muscle. It was one of the early shows. And bam, you're showing her off. That's that's kind of the gear I was wearing in '97 ish. So I want to ask you because we were doing a little bit of research, and I forgot that in 2007 you made a documentary called Heckler, right? And it's about the increasingly finer line between insulting and critiquing. So what made you make Heckler? Were you being heckled? Oh, dude, I was thinking about this last night. It's weird. Um, I was kind of in the hyperbolic chamber of heckles. And it was like heckling on steroids in the sense of... And there's a moment where where it all metastasized for me, just like you just said that moment for you, where... I had been starring in like my first or second movie. I'd worked my way up and I've gotten, you know, starring roles and movie that like, first of all, you would think would work. You'd go to the premiere. Everyone would laugh. You'd laugh when you'd make it. You'd go out and test screenings, watch people laugh. And then the reviews would just be like, not only should Kennedy not have a career, his mother's uterus should have a sign that says shut down for business. Like, just like, yo, it was like, and the New York Times had Janet Maslin, who would, well, I remember when she reviewed Knoxville and she reviewed The Horse Whisperer the same way. She would say, Mr. Ford, Mrs. Johansson, and Mr. Knoxville. And it was always the same, no matter what she was reviewing. And I thought, that's like a reviewer. Anyway, I made one or two stinkers which is understandable, not ones that I like. So they were stinkers. But at the time, 05 was when anybody could start their voice. So there was something called blog.com. 
And so I think it was Rotten Tomatoes came around right around there. And it was like, I'll never forget it. There was a fucking review called WaffleMovie.com. And the guy's like, I give this movie one and a half waffles. And I'm like, what? What the fuck is this? Who's the waffle movie? I mean, do you have to understand? This is like unheard of. This is probably normal for people. And this guy was just ruining me. And then there was all of these boards. We never had feedback, Josh. Remember when you'd buy a toaster and that was it? Now you buy a toaster and it's like, this toaster's a piece of shit. This toaster's a racist, misogynist. Yeah, you can talk about it. You can tell the world about how much you hate something. That never happened before 05. So it was like regular reviews, starring, boom, blogs from Arkansas, everyone. And I was like, just, and I was, of course, reading them all. And then I was like, what the fuck? Who are these people? And it was a way for me to, and I was also doing stand-up, so it was therapy. So the first I started was with just, stand up and I would get heckles which were fine and then I it's how it blossomed and I started interviewing hecklers and to me the whole movie is about how a live in-person heckler is the coolest and bravest and it it, 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 it is it has gone down into not good into trolling you it's you basically you basically were the first person to do anything about internet trolling because that's what that's what but that's what these 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 they're, if they're not Siskel and Ebert or the New York Times or Ann Hordaday at the Washington Post, like I don't give a fuck about some of these other people's opinions. So why should their reviews be on the same website with some of the most respected critics in the world? And I'm just talking about critiquing. I'm not talking about heckling in person or even on the internet. But it's there's well, a huge and I and I got two know? two interviews in that. Yeah, I totally agree. And two interviews during that, one wouldn't let me air, and one would, and one was. George, this is all I need to know. And I needed to go out to other people and realize, okay, it's not just me. And that's why I had to do it because it was, it was very hurtful. And it was, cause this is your career. Someone says, Josh Adam Myers yeah. fucking sucks balls every day. And it goes out to a hundred thousand people that could affect your sales. That could affect, you're like, yo, one guy didn't like my fucking dolphin <laughs> joke. You know what I mean? Or whatever. You know, I mean, it's like, yeah. it's like, cause it's, it's just crazy. Right. So it's, and it's like, you know, you're killing. And then one person doesn't like it. It's like weird. So, but it doesn't mean there's times where I have not sucked. I've obviously I've sucked a lot and I like a critique. I, I like a, I like a, a nice course, critique. Yeah, if, you, you, if I did it, you're, you're yeah, self-aware. You're like, oh, Jamie, yeah. pretty good set. That last time it didn't kill as much, but you, your mic was off or whatever. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm going to listen to you. Cause you're, you know, we're, we're here together. And anyway, long story short is George Lucas said there's creators and there's destroyers. If you want to create, just align yourself with them. Phil Jackson, who I didn't air, said, I'll tell you something off air. He said, by looking at the hecklers, talking to them, exposing them, you're doing exactly what you want. You're in their space, and now they have got you. Yeah. It, you have to do – like, here's when a heckle gets me now. And it's when I know I didn't put my best forward, and – I felt like I could have did fucking better there. And then someone points it out and I'm like, yeah, hate a dick. But if I bulletproof and I feel good, then I'm like, okay, that person, nah, they're wrong. But if I feel like I didn't put my best foot forward, that's when I feel like, yeah, hate a dick. As long as you try, try your best. As long as you try Dude, your best, that's you what this is. This is all, all I art know. is, right? Fucking trying. And the people that I love and respect, the last thing I'll say on it is Mike Myers. I got to meet him when I was in Aspen festival and he told me this he said it's all art 
whether it's a game show, whether it's an Oscar-winning movie, it's all art. Here's, he is, there's no elitism about Mike Myers, and that's why he's the best. Because it's just like he just go out and create, man. No, I agree. All right. Um, so then it goes into It Could Be Sweet, a very down-tempo song. I love it. Uh, it's just Beth's voice, program drums, Jeff's Fender Rhodes electric piano, and it's fantastic. Now, the next song after that, Wandering Star. This is one I want to spend a little bit of time on because it's inspired by the soulful technique of Gangstar's DJ Premier. Jeff Barrow basically took his style, scratched the intro to War's 1970 B-Side Magic Mountain, and took that and made it one of his hooks. Play the outro because it's Dougal. One of the darker songs on the record. How does that song make you feel when you hear it? Um, I think that's a cool song. Like, it was fucking just like I feel like you're creeping up again. And this is the time where I went from nothing till I got my first paycheck from a movie. And I went and bought a used BMW stick shift. It cost me $18,000. And, uh... It was like the greatest thing I had ever owned in my life. I took my whole screen paycheck, which was that, and I pretty much took like 2000 and I bought the rest with the car. And I still kept my apartment. And I was like, mm, the fucking stick shift. And, mm. and this shit was all day. Fucking remember the button you have to push to repeat on the fucking CD thing? And yeah. that's, this felt like gangster. I felt like I was popping up to do some shit pick up a bitty you know what i'm saying it was made you feel cool so i i wasn't depressed this is krista makes guitarist and vocalist for less than jake and host of krista makes a podcast a songwriting podcast where every week i'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing recording and release of one iconic song from their career in our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes we've had rock legends such as d snyder and huey lewis punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King, an off-road minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Mods to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. It's funny that you talked about you talked about that first paycheck because this is something cool I found. So Portishead DJ Andy Smith said Jeff always had a drive and determination to be successful. And according to Smith, I guess he always thought he would make it and do something big 
even in the 80s, which is amazing because it didn't happen until 1994. So that's funny to say that this song, which which they play, represents that successful drive. In a sense, you experience the same things. So I want to ask you this because you wrote the, you had your autobiography, Mm Want to Be a Hollywood Mm -hmm. Experiment. How prepared were you for the huge success of the Scream franchise? Uh, Not prepared. uh, (laughs) (laughs) I don't think Uh, you could be. I mean, that's... uh, But but always cautiously optimistic and and so broke, bro. Like not like broke, like where I was like, you know, like yo, I'll suck your dick for a bag. But like, you know, pretty broke, like couch surfing. So you were on couches when you got screened. No, I was I was in a tiny off of Hayworth. There is a building off a of fountain. And it's literally like a penitentiary. And I lived in there for about a year and it had one tiny window and it was like $4.50 a month. I mean, it might have been, I don't know, a few hundred square feet. It was a bathroom, a fucking small kitchenette and a window. And I had gotten a commercial before Scream. I'd gotten a few things and Jim Gaffigan was in it. And we were talking about, you know, like, yo, how we're going to break. What's the next thing I remember? And I got Scream. And that got me out into a better apartment. And so so then we're on the set. And not only are you on a set where you're making money, but you're standing next to Courtney. You're on a set with Courtney Cox. You're on a set with Courtney Cox. Courtney Cox. Yes. And, and so you're like, and you're on a set with Wes Craven. And everybody else who became, but... I didn't even think about yeah. that. Yeah. So dude. and Courtney Cox is like, "Hey, um, I'm going." She, like, like, like everyone was shooting, and we were shooting our scene together, and I, you're sitting with her. And so it's like she would sat with me a few times at lunch, just me and her, and I would just listen to her. Honestly, two things. I, I give her a lot of my. She doesn't know how much she buffered me for this world because she taught me, like, you know, treat it like a job. You know, know that this is summer camp. And then when it's over, this is escape. Your life is your life. And we thought if we could make, this is what you're talking about, the success. The script, the script was great. We thought the movie was interesting. She was the only known person at the time. Nev was, but she wasn't as known. And Friends was in its third year. So it was, I remember her showing, she was showed me this cover of Rolling Stone when she was on the cover of it <laughs> at lunch. And I'm like, I think we're going to, you know, this is going to help, you know? And so <laughs> the script was so good. And she's like, look, if we were like, I remember saying something like, if we, if we can make like 15 million at the box office for like a movie that costs 10, and then we can do really good on VHS. We didn't say DVD. Yeah, VHS. Dude. I'm still working at Hollywood video, dude. That's Hollywood video shit right and there, And so it's baby. like, maybe, <laughs> maybe we'll get a direct, I was thinking maybe we'll get a direct to VHS sequel. Now, do we think we had something interesting? Yes. Do we think it was outside of the box? Yes. And that's why it worked. And I think that movies that you really like do work because no one was monitoring us, dude. We were like, all right, that's kind of a lottery ticket. That could work or that could not work. So, and when movies are left alone like that, I think that's when they ones that work. I mean, that's how I know um, Jordan Peele's first movie, The uh, Get Out, I we was very low budget. My buddy worked on it and he was like, no one knew what it was. 
So that's like those type of experiences help Seinfeld. That was alternative programming. So no, did I know it was going to become the cultural zeitgeist, which it was? No. Did I know it was going to become a mask at Halloween? No way. But now it is one of like 10 things. How how did you handle the success like, you know, right off the jump? I mean, did you just because how old are you? How old are you when when scratch when smash 20, 26, just turned 26, you're 26, 26 years old. So how are you how are you handling that success? Um, Well, walk around cash, got my new apartment. Fuck yeah. BM, in, in little BM, Armenia. That, that, that B, damn BMW. <laughs> And yeah. uh, the first thing I did is I took my whole family skiing. And that was nice. Where'd you go? We went to... Where'd you go? Big Bear or you went to Colorado? No, we went to Colorado, but we went to a place called uh, Breckenridge. It was a cheaper Aspen. Oh, so, yeah. You didn't have so, Aspen money yet. Nah. Maybe, nah. maybe after Scream 2, you had Aspen money. <laughs> I mean, not wait, not Scream look, 1. <laughs> no, no way. <laughs> I went to the BMW. But dude, <laughs> I had... Went and took my whole family out. I was feeling like, you know, I did it, mom. I did that. I'm so. And I was at some sushi restaurant in Breckenridge, this little sushi place, and we were living the dream. And the very, this is it. It was the Friday it came out. The very that night, a girl comes up to me and goes, "You're the, were you in that movie Scream? You were." And I'm like. Yeah. yeah, you know, like, well, yes, I am. Me, me? Yeah. And she's like, can you ready for this? Yeah. Can you sign my napkin? Come on. Back in the day, they signed napkins. <laughs> and that was my very, I'll never forget it. Breckenridge, Colorado, 1996, December was my very first autograph. And I was like, and my mom's like, maybe this is going to work. And but I, and, and, but I wasn't like getting like hounded, like Bieber or anything. It was just like a CVS. Hey, hey. You that it was a lot of hey that for a while. How many how many times did you get hey are you David Arquette and you were like motherfucker <laughs> give me your goddamn napkin I'll sign it you piece of shit. All right, all right. So then the album goes to it's a fire, but because this isn't on the vinyl LP or the original UK or Europe's version of Dummy, we're gonna skip it. But it is a fucking dope ass song. Then we get to numb, which in my opinion might be the sickest sounding song on the album. Peter, play a little squiddiddle. So this was their first single, but it never charted at all. This the first single just came and went. But this is what I think. The DJ scratches, the huge thudding drum, the shuddering vocals about despair and loneliness, and the eerie Hammond organ played by session musician Gary Baldwin perfectly represents Portishead. I don't think there's a song that that covers all three albums more than this one right here. This is the through line of their career, this song right here, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 the organ, like you said, that scratchiness. Haunting. Haunting. The song after that is, all right. So, like I said, I love Strangers. Like I said, that's been my favorite song. Since I've had this pass on the record, Rhodes, hand down, rips my heart out every time. Peter, play a little squiddiddle. Ooh, can't anybody see 
This has become my favorite song on the record. I, 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 I honestly think this is one of the most beautiful songs that we've done so far on the podcast. It's so funny you say that because like you, you listen to an album and then other songs that you play 15 times and then you're like, I got to try a new song. You just, for me, it was always number three. It was always sour times. And that big drop. But this yeah. is a driving PCH late night Venice, like trying to get, you know, a last basketball game if they shut it down or just there. That's what this screams to me. It screams going to the real in yeah. like a late night sunset. And it's, it's sad. And I'm sitting here thinking of you and me, two dudes that are very similar that I would say are, you know, pretty alpha. Yeah, and we're both discussing this album, and we can both totally dig on it, and it's almost female eccentric and beautiful. Yeah, can you imagine how many women have listened to this album? Not just this album, but this song in particular, and just wept about a boy, about about like something in their life. It's just it's heart wrenching, and then the strings. So cool fact about this. Cool fact. Uh, the sample from this is from the score from the movie Assault on Precinct 13, composed and directed by John Carpenter. You know that movie from 1976? That's that orchestration that's coming through there. Um, I mean, I mean, this song can be interpreted in so many ways. It's, you know, what I got uh, offline was saying this is about the disillusionment when one reaches a crossroad in their life and realizes that what they were conditioned to want might not work for them. So it's a lot deeper than just a breakup or something. It's 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 roads. It's about being at a crossroads. Have you had any of those moments in your life where you're just like it could I could either be living in a sewer or I could be a multimillionaire. Like what were some of the big choices you've had to make since uh since your career's taken off? There's two things I want to say on that point, which is one all personal one professional is Personally, at this time in this record, I was um, hanging out with somebody and it was a time where she would told me that I'm not right for her, but I'm a fun time. And I wasn't going to be a good, responsible boyfriend growing into a husband type, but I'm great for her. And I was like, no, but I really love you. And she's like, she was older. And she's like, it's just not going to work. And that this song had a lot of play of this a lot. And I remember when we, you know, it wasn't a simple parting. I'm thinking to myself, this is kind of where I became a little bit of a slut. In the sense where, like, Start I was like, a lot. Yeah. well, no, it's just like Hollywood and you start yeah, meeting people and things start coming your way. Of course. Like, yeah. Well, you're- fuck it. I gave it a good college try and I was like, got my heart broken. And then I'm like, and then when you start working and thing to thing to thing and you're just, you know how it is city to city. And you're like, the next thing you know, you're 10 years deep and you're like, where'd my soul go? Yeah. So this song has a little bit of that to me where I kind of felt like I lost some of my innocence at that time. Um, 
and professionally a few years ago, I mean, a few years before this, I was, oh, I was totally broke. I, I was living in Koreatown. This was right after the riots, which I lived through during Koreatown, which I would literally watch, you know, people on the, on the roofs. And, um, it was a very tense time and I was broke, but I was living in a little shitty place. I had enough to go to get month to month. And I remember seeing, I had a TV and I remember seeing Gina Davis and she, they asked her a question. They said, well, did you always know you were going to make it? She's like, Oh, most definitely. I think you always have to know you're going to make it. And you always have to know that nothing can deter you. And I remember just throwing a shoe at my TV and I'm like, like I never knew if I was going to make it the next hour. And I was so disheartened. I, my, my tar, my car broke. I had lost my job. I worked at a place called Mrs. Gooch's, which is the precursor to whole foods. And I got a real good job as a cashier, but they wouldn't let me out for open mics, guest spots, tryouts at the improv in Melrose. And they said, you're going to give up your job to stand in line. And I said, that's the only time I can do it. Can you please let me off the shift? And they said, no. And I got fired for that. And they said, you'd rather do that and not have your job. And I said, it's my dream. So like, I literally kept doing shit like that. And I had no money, dude. And I was really broke. And then somebody lent me a couple, just like 500 bucks. And then it was slowly started. I got a waitering job catering jobs and slowly things started happening. But at that time, there was multiple times where I felt like every time I tried to quit this business, I'm like, I'm already quit. <laughs> yeah. What am I in? I'm already in shit to like, I'm, I'm in. You're broken through. It's like, you can't, you're here. You can't quit. It's like the idea of just getting here is the hardest part, you know? Yeah. Like there's no fallback plan. If you have one, you're Never. not serious. Like you have to have nothing. Because you love this so much, this takes so long to do, and it's also, it's it's this is what you it will propel you to want it so bad. You know, it's funny. I bet there's so many comedians right now living in the pandemic. Like, God, I wish I would have had a fallback plan. God, <laughs> why didn't I learn how to cobble? Why can't I just learn how to make shoes? If I just knew how to make shoes on the side, like my dad wanted me to, I wouldn't be broke and eating cobble. spam right now. <laughs> That ramen wish, nine days in a row. I wish I put more into my Etsy page. You know. Yeah, I mean. dude. All right, last song I want to talk about, and not taking away from any of the other songs like Biscuits or fucking Pedestal. All of them are great. If you haven't listened to the record, listen to it. But I want to talk about Glory Box because, uh, in my opinion, this is the gold standard of trip hop. Uh, Peter, play the first verse. I'm so tired. So there was a movie that came out on HBO years ago, probably like 2000 and fuck, I want to say 2004. It had Juliette Lewis and Uma Thurman. It was called Uncontrolled or Hysterical Blindness. Hysterical Blindness. Do you remember that? It was directed by Mira Nair or Mia Nair, whatever the girl that did uh, fucking Mississippi Masala. I might be fucking all this up, but you know, I'm not a human IMDB page people. So I get shit wrong. Don't be all squiggly with me. But what I'm trying to say is in the trailer for it, because it's about these two Jersey girls that are kind of like loose women. And they one of them, Uma Thurman, just wants to meet a guy. 
And in the trailer, they played that song. And for the first time, and I'd been a fan of that song, but for the first time, like, I understood what Beth is singing about. Tell me this isn't about that. I'm so tired of playing, playing with this bow and arrow, going to give my heart away, leave it for the other girls to play, for I've been a tentrist for too long. Just give me a reason to love you. Give me a reason to be a woman. I just want to be a woman. It's just about somebody. She's like, she's fucked everybody. She is like. Make me an honest woman. Make me. Yeah, that's all she wants. And a lot of people think that it's not about that. They think because of that line, give me a reason to be a woman. That line basically has been misinterpreted to mean that she wants some macho man to take charge and that has really pissed off the lead singer, Beth Gibbons. Oh, really? Here's what here's what I want to say about this one is that this is the first album maybe besides a Nirvana album where I, I there's only one song that I didn't like keep playing over. I, it's like towards the end, I have to go through it all. But like every song I vibed up to on this album except like maybe one, like multiple, multiple. It's a complete, 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 complete album. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I couldn't agree with you more. Do you want to do some facts and get out of here? Whatever you want. I'm so tired <laughs> of facts. All right. Ironically, while Dummy became a staple of dinner parties, romantic interludes, and chill-out sessions, they originally created it to be played at almost deafening volumes. What? Yeah. Do you know what this reminds me of? What? Dude, (laughs) Spy Bar. Look it up. Late 90s. Everyone would go there. And this was like dinner lounge, dude. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Bowery bar. You're like, "Mm -hmm, can you can you pass the tapas for me? I'm so Mm -hmm. tired of playing. Mm, What is that? So what is that? (laughs) What is that? Calamari? Can I get a piece? So it's like, oh, so you're in fashion school? Okay, cool. So how many, when's your, what's your major? What's your mind? Okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that yeah, yeah, yeah. 2 a.m. talk trying to hook up. It's misunderstood. This, this band is misunderstood. Is crazy. It's, it is, it can be background music. I could go to sleep to this music. It's so good. It's peaceful. It's, I, I think it's made for fucking. I think this, this is, this is like, take some mushrooms, take some Molly, fucking get your fuck on. The band is misunderstood. What's the most misunderstood thing about you? Wow, Josh, that was a good segue. Um, Thanks, man. I think the thing is that I think the thing about it is is that like my whatever my persona is publicly is me in terms of like I commit to playing sometimes some goofy characters and people think that I am like a goofball you know and like i think there's another side to me that is you know not that and i think that a lot of people don't realize that. i think they're starting to know it now because i do so many podcasts and stuff and you get to know people more but i think for a time people just looked at me as like a like one way and and i think that i have thoughts on things you know but like my job is an entertainer so like i don't really share them but you know i have more to say than just you know things i've done you know and i think that's something i I, I mean, I, I can completely see why people would think that you are this goofball. But what's so cool about it is that I've been in so many comedy club situations with you where we've had little chats. And the last thing you have ever been has been like, zoinks. Ah, <laughs> I'm like, it's like, 
<laughs> Dude, I I so agree. You, you know, it, it's I share a kinship with you, whether you know that or not, because you're a chill. Here's my interpretation. Hit me. I want to know. I want to know how well, Jamie Kennedy thinks of me. Go ahead. You're a dude. You know I'm what I mean? Dude. You're I a have dude. A penis. You get up there. <laughs> you fucking let the audience know you're in charge right away. You're unassuming. You know, probably a little bit more take charge than um, average people. And then you will go from zero to hero in three seconds. You're not scared to go into a crazy voice, a crazy character, very light, and then go back again. And look, okay, guys, here's what. It, and I share a kinship with you because I love that. And I relate to it. And I also do that. I'll come out there yeah. half tired. What's up? What's up? And then I'll be like, hey, so, you know, I'll do some fucking. Yeah. I'll can I sell a where, bit. You're not scared you, to sell yeah. a bit. And that's, and, and that's what, because you sell a bit. Well, you know it, especially, be- you know it from working on Jamie Kennedy is, and it, from acting is you have to commit. You have to yes, commit 100%, 100% to what, especially in standup. If you don't commit, you might as well not do it. And if you want to understand the 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 low to high, my one of my biggest influences is Gene Wilder, wow. and the way that he would like Young Frankenstein that he could be talking and then screaming at like the next mm-hmm. moment. It's just like that's the shit I grew up on. But so. you 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 have tattoos. You know, you have a toughness about you. You have a goatee. You have a cool Now, now I have vibe. the goatee. This no, is I know, thing. but you, <laughs> you could like walk into a bar. I know you don't drink, but you could be like, what's up? You know, low key. And then you'll do a funny character. And that's a huge juxtaposition. And I yeah. think that's, so people could look at you as a cool dude, but you're all, to me, you're cool because you can do characters and do all that stuff. But to me, yeah. you're not, you're not scared. Uh, comedy is not about looking Cool. We're about looking goofy, and you're you you're having like fun. Me. Yeah. If you, have, if you have fun, if you have fun, and that's that's always for the last two years of doing it, I've stopped caring about how good my spots are when I'm going on in the lineup, any of that bullshit. And all I've ever said is just right before I go up, he's like, I just want to have fun because if I'm not gonna have fun, there's no point of doing this shit. That's it. Even life. That's my big thing for coming out of the quarantine. I don't give a fuck if I have a movie written or what. All I care about is when this thing is done and we go back to normal, that I had a joyful experience during this at quarantine. And that's it. That's all life is. I, I do agree with you in the sense that this has showed me that all I want to do is do what I want to do. I don't want to fucking do shit that I do not want to do. I don't want to hang with people I don't want to hang with. I don't want to fucking give time to people. I don't want to play no bullshit games. And I think probably a lot of us have gotten this kind of real gravitas of what we what's important to us because this is like a fucking huge wake-up call. Yeah. Oh, completely. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamb Goat's Van Flip Podcast. All right. Uh, next one. Dummy got its title and mood from a 1977 British TV movie about a deaf mute girl whose life descends into prostitution and degradation. Yeah, I could see why they would use that as a title with their music. When have you prostituted your ideals? <laughs> Bro, have you seen some of my movies? Um, I mean prostituted my ideals i think sometimes when you like i was just saying it's like sometimes you take a job you know professionally for reasons that aren't exactly thought-provoking 
how can I say this? You take a job for money or you do something like that. And you, I've prostituted my ideals all the time, dude, a lot. It's only now <laughs> in my late forties, let's be blunt that I'm really not, I'm really like trying to just do it to be good. You know what I mean? There's so many reasons why I prostituted my ideals. So yeah, I never really came into this with a strong ideal moralistically, but now, like I said, we want to, you want to do, I want to do what I I'm comfortable. I'm, I've got a, you know, a nice life, you know, you can always do more. You can always have less. And now it's like, I think it's time for me to put my voice again in what I want to do, which I've done before, but trusting other people sometimes with your ideas doesn't really work well. I, I completely agree with you. All right. Last fact. While working on early recordings in a tiny windowless studio, they all smoked so many cigarettes that once when they opened the door for fresh air, all the escaping smoke made the fire department show up. So being that this sounds like a whiff or something that could have happened off the Jamie Kennedy experiment, another one about Jamie Kennedy experiment. What's the prank that defined America's intrigue into the JKE? Definitely the number one is B-Rad. B-Rad being a hip-hop aspiring rapper, a girl wanted to bring, she was from a Middle Eastern family. It's the, one of the first pranks we ever did. And she wanted to bring home a man to her very controlling mother. And it was me as B-Rad. And the lady was like, I can't even remember, but she's like, you're going to have a good job? And I'm like, yeah, my job is spitting rhymes. You know what I'm saying? Getting honeys. You know what I'm saying? Getting monies. And the mom was like, no. no. Like, And it, it, that, to me, just was like opened up what it was. And people were like, is this real? Is it not? And it was the first real foray into what it was. There was another one called Wine Tasting where I had a jaw. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that one. Yeah. But- I want to ask you this because I so I there's something about you that it's like even seeing you not just on television but even knowing you now too is that you still have uh what's the word that like I want to I'm going to say hip hop vibe but what's the word that black people use all the time Swizzag. Yeah, you have swag. Thank you. But you <laughs> wrote Malibu's most wanted with Swarty. Like yeah. the most unswaggable having dude <laughs> that I've ever no. met. How is Swartzen? <laughs> Writing that with you. What made no, you think that you and Swarty could write a movie about hip-hop? Like, what got you to do that shit? Um, well, no, Sw- Swarty has a lot of swag, actually. But I love it, this. I'm not shitting on him. No shade. No, no I shade. know. No, no, no. You no, should hear what no, he says about me. No. So, <laughs> he goes, who is that guy? You guys well, are- he goes, yeah, what's his name? <laughs> who are you talking about? <laughs> uh, it happened where... where- I was doing the character in stand-up, you know? So I was doing characters, and then jokes would come later. You know, my whole thing was just do a different character and try to make it funny. Nick, I met him in 98. I was doing... I was opening for Bob Saget. I was opening for Craig Shoemaker. I was opening for Rick Overton. And I was lucky because I only had to do 12 minutes. And I had just enough. And they were like, yo, put him in there. You'll develop. People will know who you are. I got my first real middle at 20 minutes at Tempe. Nick was the MC. I had to do 20. And a guy named Heath Heitch was the headliner. And Nick would go out and do 10 minutes, and he would just 
destroy. Annihilate. Yeah, he's one of the funniest destroy. people. Destroy. And I'm like, who the fuck is this fucking dude? I got to follow him. And I had about a good eight, nine minutes. And then I was like fucking floundering. And so I'd sit in the green room. And the, like one of the first things he said to me is like, good set, man. Tried this, 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 and this. Second show, two more jokes, another minute. By the end of like the weekend, I had like eight more minutes of fuck yeah, right? And I'm like, dude, yeah. you're fucking amazing. What are you? He's like, nothing. He's like, buy me a bagel at Einstein's so, and a like, Tito's and vi- Tito's and soda too. Twenty five <laughs> Tito's and sodas. Was- <laughs> Twenty five. That was the beginning. So then he like called me and he's like, hit me when you're in LA. I'll hit you up. And he hit me up and he's like, yo, I think I got an idea. You know, you want to do a movie for that character you did. And I got an idea. And I'm like, what is it? He's like, let me just write it. So I'm like, okay. So he wrote 10 pages. He came over to my house. I just bought my house. And I'm fucking cracking the fuck up. I'm like, this shit is a world. It's hilarious. And he's like, yo, give me like a hundred bucks and I'll write 10 more. And I'm like, Bam. And he's like, yo, I need some beer. And I bought him like a six pack of beer. I'm not kidding you. Like I would pay him in beer and like 10 pages at a time. Sounds like Swarty. For like less, <laughs> for like a less than a thousand bucks. He wrote the fucking first draft of the fucking what it was. And it was mostly what's in the fucking movie now. And he just, he, I, he's just hilarious. And he, I owe him so much for it. He, I mean, I would have my character. So he knew my voice right away. He knew my fucking voice which was different as a stand-up than it was as acting and he watched me on he he watched me at stand-up a lot and that's how he got my voice he got it very quickly and uh and that's how he became i think he's also you have to remember josh he's a fucking super fan of hip-hop i'm a super fan of hip-hop and then you got kids out there like milanakis simon rex ogs tom green we're all different versions of it that were you wouldn't expect it yeah, you are. There, there is, there is. I never even thought about bundling all of you up in some sort of like little like group. But yeah, there is this like we're funny, we're white, and we also can spit every lyric off of Enter the Thirty Six Chambers, right? Oh, for sure. Like, like yeah. Like I think I like I want to say Nick. Neither Nick or Scotty. One of them, Scotty Khan, put me on to Gangstar. I think they put me. Nick put me on the Gangstar. Like guru, um, premier, yeah. So like Nick, and and the whole thing is like I remember here in Thirty Six Chambers at 1993 in an open mic in Pedersons off of Venice. It was a coffee shop, and Sherry Shepard's ex husband Jeff T. She won't like me bringing that up, but what's up, Jeff? What's up, Sherry? Come on, get get together. Put me on. He's like, yo, just the new shit from New York. Check it. And it was like literally a tape, bro. He like had the tape before it came out. And that was like that changed everything. A whole other thing. But like it just it was comedy. Nick had the ability to write a character so funny, but kept it true to like what hip hop heads would like, but also with my voice, which was like innocent. Cause that's what B Rad is. He's like really believes what he's doing. And I think that's like you have to understand hip hop now is like all bets are off. But back then, you know, until Eminem really solidified it, it was few and far between, which is why I always say, and that's another podcast, why Eminem had to be the GOAT 
he's like, you know, whatever you feel he is, one or two or three, he's probably, you know, it depends on where you're at. It's him and Jay-Z and Biggie, in my opinion. Um, the reason why he had to is because there was so many things going against him. Yeah, no, I agree with you. You know, what's funny is I, I re- totally respect Eminem. I, there's so many songs that I do dig, but when he was taking off, that was when I was like, I've always been the guy that was like, all right, so if this is what's popular, I'm going to go against it and try to find other shit. Uh, oh, so, but guess you're what? I, that guy. No, but not in a dick way. Because, dude, what I had found. You're that. But Jamie, what's that amoeba, bro? Jamie, what, what's that? Did you get an amoeba? What I found was Black Star. <laughs> okay. I wasn't fighting right. being a fan of Eminem. Like I said, respect, appreciation, all that shit. Now I really respect him even more because how he's grown over the years. But it's just I've always, I always kind of was like, yeah. I mean, I mean, Biggie's better. I'm, I'm that guy. I'm the Biggie's better guy. You know what I mean? I honestly, I mean, I'm not one to say, but the lyricist, the way he he could Eminem pass again could be the goat. On that thought, though, what you were saying is, is I'm going to say this to you because because you're like an aficionado, and I only I'm not an aficionado, but I know a lot of shit only because of this business and how it blessed me, and I was able to get into opportunities, and I was in movies with Scott Kahn, who was really down. He knew a lot of good shit. He put me onto a lot of music, too. Around the same time, I was hanging with Nick. And one of Scott's friends was DJ AM, who was from Philly. And this was when DJ AM was, you know, heavier. You can't say, what you know, husky. I don't know. God rest his soul. And he would also give me shit. He put me onto the roots before they came out. And he's like, yo, check this band out. He put me on to so much shit. And he... So, again... I would have never known that stuff had I not had a friend that was an actor that was with the DJ. I mean, he was the first DJ that became a DJ in my eyes. And so he always had shit. He would play down here at Las Palmas. There was a club called Las Palmas, and he would play the shit he would listen to and be like literally digging in the crates. And you're like, so that's how I learned anything like considered credible from him and Scotty and Nick. Jamie. Uh, this was fantastic, dude. This was so much fun, brother. I, I can't dude. thank you enough for coming on. Seriously. Thank you for having me. It was great, dude. I fucking had a lot of fucking fun. What did I tell you? What did I tell you? The one and only Jamie Kennedy, guys. Follow Jamie on Twitter at Jamie Kennedy. And follow him on Instagram at the Jamie Kennedy. Check out his brand new special, Stupid Smart, which comes out on Memorial Day, May 25th. And see Crabs in a Bucket with Taryn Manning and Bruce Dern, available anywhere you get your movies. Now. We just listened to Portishead from 1994. This week, our new music choice is Emancipator. The 32-year-old producer and DJ Douglas Appling has been making trip-hop and electronica tracks under the Emancipator name since 2006. Music that recalls Portishead, DJ Shadow, Thievery Corporation. His new album, Mountain of Memory, is out now on Loki Records. Check out the standout track, Labyrinth, and you can stream it all on Spotify. Find the link on our website, the500podcast.com. And if you're in a band and we're directly influenced by one of these albums or artists, I want your music. Send it to us. We'll play it on the podcast. Put it on the website. Make sure it was influenced by one of these artists or albums. And we'll do you good, baby. Next week, 
is Paul McCartney week as we go through his 1973 album Band on the Run. You've got some homework to do. Listen to the album on Spotify. Stay fleecy. Dougal. Dougal. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and, in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Next Chapter Podcasts.